This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello, and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Miles Danhausen Jr writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. And today I'm joined by the head honcho, Dave Elliott. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Mm, Head honcho. Great, Miles. Thanks for the title. (laughs) We're here today to talk a little bit about Door County Living's philanthropy issue, which uh, just hit shelves here and something we worked really hard on over the last couple of months and tried to highlight kind of a, a different aspect of philanthropy, something about kind of how communities kind of invest in themselves and to give to everyone in the community, I guess is a good synopsis of it, Dave. Well, you were the one who wrote all the, wrote the big article and did all the <laughs> research for it. So you should know better than most, but yes, that is the idea. Well, and it, it kind of came out of conversations. Each year we take on the philanthropy issue and we try to highlight, we kind of try, try to pick a theme and highlight an aspect of philanthropy in Door County and the impact it makes. And maybe it'd be helpful to backtrack a little bit about why this issue, why we even started doing this philanthropy issue. Well, so I guess it's in its, I think it started in 2007. I think so. I think it's our first issue. Boy, I have to start thinking, look at that research quick. We're getting old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the idea behind it was that there's over 300 charitable organizations in our community. What are growing they, every day. And what are they doing and how are they contributing? And do we need more? Sometimes yes, but maybe we can inspire more organizations to look and see how they could partner instead of starting another one. Maybe this opens some people's eyes to the things that already exist. So instead of starting something new, they could join in. That was part of it. How do we inspire more people to give back to the community? And by telling the stories of those people that are already doing it is usually helpful in doing that kind of thing. And when you originally started talking about hey, let's do this philanthropy issue. At first, I was like, well, that doesn't sound like a super fun topic. But then as we started talking about it, you know, 15 years ago, you realize what it's more than just like people giving a few bucks here and there. It's more than just building a building, but like the economic impact that philanthropy has on our community and just the cultural impact. So much of what we feel like in a day-to-day sense, what defines us as a community is actually nonprofits, whether things like Peninsula Players and Northern Sky Theater or the Crest Pavilion. So many things that we use all the time, even the Peg Egan Performing Arts Center, the The hospital, the hospital, yeah, the Scandia Village Good Samaritan, Door Community Auditorium, all these things. YMCA. Yeah. I mean, if you, if if you, sorry, I'm interrupting. No, go ahead. uh, Our community actually relies on charitable giving more than most, and we benefit greatly from it. A lot of the resources and the amenities that people have grown accustomed to wouldn't exist here unless we had people donating to enlarge a, uh, a cancer clinic or a cancer wing at the hospital or making a large swimming pool at the YMCA, let alone the weightlifting facilities and all of that that opens up this community to more and more people. And then the cultural experiences that you mentioned, the auditorium, the, the pencil players, there's a long history of that as well. And we most communities our size don't have a 700-seat auditorium, let alone two of them, another one in Southern Door. Yeah. So... Childcare. Yeah, childcare child care is an, another incredible piece of this puzzle, yeah. But so this year, we looked at, well, how much is actually being invested to conserve our environment publicly with dollars that each municipality has? And you delved into that, and I think you ended up starting with the Helms Four Season Project in Sister Bay. Yeah, I mean, I, you and I have talked about this in the office a little bit because, you know, we talk about tourism a lot, whether it's 
whether it's too much, whether there's too little, you know, most of our lifetime, we've thought it was too little. And maybe, maybe there is, I don't want to say too much, but there's more, there's something to manage now, which is a good problem to have. And as we talk about that, you go, well, why is it? Why do we have all this tourism? And that was the first thing that got me thinking about this is yes, we've marketed, we've done other things, but we have a, a better community for people to come visit and a better community to live in. My dad would say that all the time. Like it's a lot better to move up here today than it was in 1974 when he made the move and the county was all but shut down for eight months a year. The, and some people like that. I mean, yeah. that, that change is something that's hard for people to come accustomed to. But I think if we're talking about what, can I just want to clarify one thing. I'm not for all more and more and more and more visitors. I don't think you are either. No. But we are looking to attract someone that, and this is another reason why we did the philanthropy issue, is we want people to come here and visit, realize that they're visiting a community. They're visiting somebody's home. They're visiting a place where people are trying to make a living. They're trying to find a way to irk out their own life for themselves. And it's only possible through the giving of others to make that possible. So if we can show visitors that, hey, this place exists because of philanthropy, come and join us. So many seasonal residents contribute so much to our community and they're visitors for half the year. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a community that cares about itself. You know, this is not a suburban community that people view as this is the stopgap during my career on my way to retirement somewhere else. The people who live here are generally people who are going to live here for the long haul. I mean, if you've made that decision to move here, if you're invested here, if you're fifth generation, like you, you care about this. And even if you do move away for a time, you still care about it. That's part of what, where the giving comes from. But what we try to get at is as, as I started adding it up, I'm like, well, Sister Bay, what, what happened in these last 15 years that elevated tourism, that elevated the style of life here, you know, in Sister Bay bought Helms Four Seasons back in 2007 for $5.5 million. And I remember thinking that, wow, that is a crazy decision. I'm glad they did it, but I, how is that going to work? And then they bought a couple of years later, Al Johnson's waterfront property for $5 million. And then, then they just invested a ton of money in fixing the downtown, like the waterfront and shoring up the waterfront. And then the Casperson's building. So I started now, going I'm like, going to interject here quick. Now, there's some listeners that are probably sitting there going, thinking, how much they're raising their taxes in the village of Sister Bay to pay for five million, ten million? How many, how many millions of dollars? And that's kind of what you delve into this too, as well. I don't, I don't want you to forget about that piece. Right? Of yeah. Well, well, that was the starting point, and then I started looking at other communities and Fish Creek. First, when they expanded the beach, a million dollars there, and and just more recently, they spent three point five million dollars to open up a chunk of waterfront. And I started to add up all the different waterfront parcels. And as you start doing that, you go, in, even in this time of development, even in this time of you know, private homes being built and dotting the shorelines and the countryside, we actually have more public waterfront than I ever grew up with. And then I thought more and more about it. And you go like, this probably more, more of our shoreline is publicly accessible and really accessible with boat launches and, and other ways to, and beaches than at any time, really, since the white man started privatizing everything when we arrived here. So in Sister Bay, they didn't have that whole shoreline. You know, there, there was only a little sliver that was actually public waterfront for most of the last century. And Bailey's Harbor recently buying the and Nelson's it was a property. marina. It was a marina. It wasn't a beach. Yeah, they had the marina, and then they had that tiny sliver of a beach. And so it's when you add it all up, what we came up to was almost 26, more than $26 million in just municipal investments. So we're talking town governments and municipalities deciding to invest in themselves and buy property to open it up for everybody. And I always think back to the, the mayor of Charleston, who years and years ago, he was the mayor for like 40 years. He's considered one of the great mayors in the history of the United States. And he said, you give the best of the city to everyone. And that was his theory about buying up the, the waterfront in Charleston. 
and then encouraging the development off the waterfront, across the street, kind of like Sister Bay did. So you pay for it with the development across the street, but you open up the very best part of your community to everybody. Yeah, exactly. I don't have anything <laughs> to add to that one, Miles. Keep well, going. <laughs> well, it's, it's just... So there's other steps to this that I want to take, but I thought it was just really interesting to see how even Sturgeon Bay, who we don't think of as like making these massive purchases like some of these other communities, but they've opened up those through easements and some public purchases, a lot of waterfront walkway. And there's over the last couple of years, they've done a better job of trying to let people know that it's there. I mean, even until a couple of years ago, I didn't know that you could walk so much of the shoreline in Sturgeon Bay and just that it was all publicly And accessible. that's been a problem in all the municipalities. They've all had trouble letting the communities know how much they actually do for those communities. It's, right. It's just a, local governments aren't really good at letting people know what's going on. And so the next step for us, and you you mentioned the tax impact of like, well, you're, you're buying this, this is going to raise my taxes. There's a couple of things. Sister Bay has actually gotten millions of dollars in grants to help offset the cost of those purchases. So as the village of Egg Harbor and so as uh, town of Liberty Grove and some of their purchases. And that's another, there's well, another purchase there, the Gills Rock shoreline. Well, let alone private donations. I mean, the, the Pebble Beach project, the village put up some, they got some grants and they got a whole bunch of money from the, just the general public that donated to it. Yeah. I think the, as of right now, the final cost of the village of Sister Bay to preserve Pebble Beach is going to be $600,000. <laughs> Like that's pretty remarkable. And that, again, that goes to that core cooperation that you talked about is like getting people to work together to make good things happen instead of being stuck in our silos. And you've pushed this pretty hard with the Nelson's project in Bailey's Harbor. When that property became available, was that last year, two years ago that the town bought it? 2021, the town purchased it. And where does that sit now? That is in a committee right now that is, we actually have Edgewater Resources. They're an engineering firm that's come in and they're meeting with the general public on Monday and Tuesday next week to go over and come up with some ideas, throw some stuff on the on paper and see if the community bites onto what it is. Uh, but the idea was green space. Like how do we open up? That's what you talk about Sister Bay opening up all this waterfront. Really the town of Bailey's Harbor had a small little marina and Ann Clam Park at the south end of town to, that has public access right within the town itself, the town center. So have it, being able to buy the Nelson hardware store plus that old service center and the hotel, it opens up a beautiful view coming into town of, of the waterfront there. Yeah, when you come in, especially from the north, whereas, uh, you know, I drive into Bailey's Harbor every day coming from the north. Once that's cleared up, I mean, you're just going to be staring at water as you come in from the north side of the, the town. And, and you don't realize it now because those buildings have been there forever. But if you take that service station down and that the hardware building, you're actually looking towards the Ridges Beach when you come in from the south. So it'll hmm. actually, I mean, it's a totally different view than people have ever seen. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kewanee counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. How, how is that project funded? Like, how, break down how that purchase plays out for the taxpayers. So the, the Nelsons themselves, Gary came in and said, hey, I want to help the town purchase this property. So he gen generously came forward with the land contract. So the town is actually spreading the payments out over six years. Starting in 2021 was our first payment. 
And then in addition to that, um, we did a public campaign and raised $1.1 million, of which 600000 goes to the purchase of the property, and then another 500000 goes towards the redevelopment of it. Okay. So you get the, that's another public-private cooperation effort. Absolutely. And we work with the Community Foundation. They, we couldn't have done it without them. They're, they were the ones that hold the funds. They allow us to raise money and you have it, everything donation be charitable. And they're basically what they've built up and trust in the community we can rely on to help make move the project forward as well. Do you guys have any sort of timetable for, you know, is this a, when will people start to see things happen on that property? Is that something that you, I, I know like you're going through the process so you don't know, but is that a, a one year, a five year, like what's so the goal is to get those buildings down this year. At least okay. that's what been discussed. The engineering firm came through and is looking at a couple different contractors and timelines about and cost for what it would take to take those buildings down this year. But there's so many things to think about. There's what's the traffic in and out of the marina at that time? What's the traffic in and out through town? When can you do that and haul away all of that debris in a way that doesn't disrupt the regular flow of summer? And you're going to have a big hole there. How do you fill it back in without having it look ugly all summer long, too? Mm-hmm. So if we can take all those variables and figure out a way to do it, we'd do it really quickly. But if it's mm-hmm. going to take longer, it's something that buildings probably wouldn't come down until November. Okay. Going back to the larger issue here. So you, you we've outlined how much these communities have spent on themselves to invest in themselves, to invest in, to some degree, tourism. But, you know, I walk around Baylor's Harbor all the time. I walk up and down the pier of, of Anclam Beach. In Sister Bay, I walk the waterfront all the time as a resident. I've gone down to the Fish Creek Beach since they expanded that. So it's not just a tourist thing. It does, it benefits all of us. But from a tourism standpoint, as it's helped bring in more dollars, and the reason I started at the Helms Four Seasons timeline is back in 2007, the county also implemented room tax. So there's this strong correlation between when they started investing major dollars in their shorelines and opening public access, and also when room tax was implemented. And then you get this great data from room tax that says, here's how lodging is doing. Here's how tourism industry is doing. And it's not just anecdotal of, I feel like it's busier than it used to be, but it's like, well, here's exactly how many more people are filling room nights. So you get this really quantifiable data from it. And you can see that correlation of you open up shoreline, you open up public access for everybody, and it ends up benefiting. That money comes back multiple times over. And then also the reason some of these municipalities have been able to invest in ourselves is because of those tourism dollars, because they're getting those several hundred thousand dollars a year extra from room tax revenue because the municipalities get 30% of every room tax dollar. So that comes back to the municipality and they can spend it any way they want. And that really, without that, in talking to a lot of different municipal officials, without that $20 million that has gone into municipal coffers over the 15 years of room tax, they're not as quick to buy up this this public property. No, not at all. And one thing I want to add too, I mean, we talk a lot about visitors and what locals at, it's also been able to attract more families here. Like you Absolutely. have more you have more access to public waterfront, you have more access to public waterfront that's maintained like meticulously by each of these municipalities as well. I mean, they do clean up to it. They don't just buy it. They actually take care of it, mm-hmm. which is another piece. But it is attracting young families with kids, which we were losing by bucket loads I mean, for years. And Most it's, of the early part of this century, we were talking about, oh, we're, you know, I, there are going to be listeners who get angry at me for using this phrase, but the newlyweds and nearly dads was the, the thing that Door County was getting. I see you're already angry that I said that? No, I'm <laughs> grinning. I, I, I think that's a very relative term. And sometimes those newlyweds end up being nearly deads in the same community that they were newlyweds in. So right. it's just part of the, it's part of our cycle that we all participate in. But that was every business owner's lament at that time. 
you know, and of people, even my dad at his uh, motel in Egg Harbor saying, even five years ago, how are we going to replenish this? Like our customers are literally dying off with no one to replace them. It wasn't that long ago that that was the case. But then this 10 years of, at that point, about 10 years of investing in ourselves, now that word was starting to get out. And now you started to see a lot more younger people visiting up here and also moving here. Well, and it's created a higher demand for housing. It's all, it all kind of, it trickles down and has an effect of everything, but we have to deal with all those things. That doesn't mean you stop one thing because you feel like it's the cause. You just have to figure out how to keep moving it forward. How do we figure that out? <laughs> one day at a time, Miles. <laughs> but no, I, I do think that influx of younger families is a key point here in that our beaches were not that, I mean, 2001, 2002, we were we had the major beach crisis, right? So we've gone from a community that has, our beaches are literally dangerous and our people are getting sick. Which we don't have anymore, which we don't (laughs) have anymore, which we don't have anymore. But you know, um, that was the publicity we were getting. Right. So you went from that, plus our beaches were pretty small and- um, They were limited to the parks, the the state parks essentially. Yeah, they were very limited and then they were eroding and we weren't investing in them at all. So they were just, you know, if, if they washed away, if there was, our, our infrastructure down there wasn't really nice. We didn't have boardwalks. We didn't have a lot of these nice walkways. Just for beach. those people listening that Miles has uh, perpetually told me that I can't use the word infrastructure and <laughs> scolded me over and over and over again on podcasts. So he just used it. I just want, it is, <laughs> let, leave that in there, podcast, please. Don't edit that, that piece you, out. Thanks. Um, but the beaches are nicer. Like when I was a kid going to Egg Harbor Beach, technically it was a private beach because it was on Alpine property. And that pier, and it's still crumbling today, but since then, now the Egg Harbor Beach is like, if your family comes up there and goes to the Egg Harbor Beach, they walk away saying, that's a really nice beach. Wow, that's really beautiful. When you were kids, it was just a sliver of sand and a falling apart pier. Oh, I've talked to Sister Bay locals who talk about the metal objects that were lining and and stuck on the Sister Bay beaches for almost a decade in the 50s that that it was unsafe to walk without shoes on. I mean, (laughs) there's, yeah. So everything is a lot nicer. Like when I, when I walk around Sister Bay, if you go to a concert in the park, you see dozens of local families sitting in Waterfront Park in what used to be privatized for the guests of Helms Four Seasons, or that was privatized. I mean, we used to have the Al Johnson's kind of warehouse on the waterfront in the middle of town. So all those things it are now- It was a boutique, wasn't it? Wasn't it a clothing? Yeah, area? and I think a lot of storage in there. Yep. Maybe I'm wrong, but it was a big, It was a storefront, building. but yes, it was a very big and dark building. So all that- all those spaces are now public for everybody to enjoy. And that is part of the give and take of tourism. So that's one of the, really what we were trying to get at is one, I, I just like finally having an opportunity to dive into the data on some of this and add up those figures and take some time and, and look at how much we've invested, but then show that correlation between the two. Cause that's part of this tourism discussion that we're having right now. But it made so many things possible and just looping back to the the topic of this particular podcast of the opening the shorefront in our philanthropy issue. There's just so many, I mean, what, what was it? 2,700 feet of shoreline. I think that you, we've talked about opening yeah. up. Yep. I mean, it's, it's just and 130 acres of land adjacent to that shoreline. We didn't even look at door County land trust and the nature conservancy and the things that they've done. This was solely focused on municipal investments using taxpayer dollars and then going out and getting grant funding. Yep. So, I mean, it, there's probably double that when you start adding in all the other nonprofits that have opened up stuff like the Sturgeon Bay Shipping Canal and the Shoreline Down in Clay Banks and Three Springs Nature Preserve. I mean, it, it's pretty remarkable what's happened in just the 25 years since 
the Peninsula Pulse started printing. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, and on top of that, you've also delved into what Crossroads is doing. And you're talking a little bit about what Destination Door County is doing with their new model of things. What, who else did you touch on in the? Well, you know, we, we also looked at some of the, each year in the philanthropy issue, we try to highlight individuals who are doing a little more, like we call it people making an impact or difference makers, things like that. And it's just, you know, not people necessarily giving millions of dollars, but people who every day show up for the community by volunteering, by leading an organization, by um, leading a fundraising effort or teaching all these different ways that people can give back and, and help their community. But this year, we also wanted to look at people historically who set the example for that. So people like Emma Toft with, you know, the Ridges doesn't exist with, without Emma Toft. Toft Point doesn't exist without her. And I think reminding people of that, that this goes back this is a 50, 70, 80 year ethic of people who laid the groundwork, even people like Roy and Charlotte, who Charlotte continues to write for us. Roy wrote for us forever. And Jens Jensen, years and years and years ago. Today, we have John Hippensteel, who has been fighting the fight to try and get wind and solar power a bigger part of our community for, for many years. So just trying to highlight those people, Coggin Herringa at Crossroads, who has been an educator, I mean, was a substitute teacher for me when I was a kid at Gibraltar, and now for 20-some years has been a leader at Crossroads at Big Creek, and just this passionate voice for that organization, and teacher, and organizer, and director. And you think of, you know, over the last 20 years, how many programs I've been to at Crossroads. And if that doesn't exist, and if there isn't someone like Cog in there to make things happen and, and keep pushing it forward, and who believes in it every day... Now that organization is going through like a transformational stage itself as it matures. So telling those stories of how these nonprofits evolve too is as somebody who sits on a board of a nonprofit is also very educational for me. So this issue serves many functions for me to educate myself on how other organizations do it, but also to tell the story of our community and how we become what we are. Well, all the people you mentioned, it's all about passion, right? I mean, you like if you can't leave that descriptive piece of the puzzle out of this whole thing. I mean, Coggins' passion for healthy water for the environment and the, I mean, the Roy and Charlotte Lukes and Jen Jensen and Emma Toft. And you think about those guys, they were, Jen Jensen, didn't they hang out together yeah. too? Yep. And Olivia Traven, I think was another That's one another in the mix too. They'd actually meet between the ridges and going up to the clearing. Yeah. Lee Tra I had the, um, the, the honor of meeting Lee Traven, Olivia Traven's son a few years ago, and he would, he's passed away, but he told me stories about sitting in the car, waiting for mom at the end of, they'd park the car at the end of the, the clearing drive in the snowstorm and they'd trek in and then trek out for meetings because they couldn't <laughs> get the cars all the way down. I mean, it's, it's good stuff. Well, even you talk about that passion. Thomas Reynolds is another person we touch on briefly in the, this magazine. And that's a name not many people know, but he was a, a state assemblyman out of Jacksonport who fought tooth and nail to get Peninsula State Park established. And we take for granted things like that. We take the ridges for granted. We take Peninsula State Park for granted. People had to fight for that. Like Peninsula State Park seems like this very obvious thing now. But people like Hallmar, I can't Holland say work? Holland. Hallmar Holland. Holland. <laughs> um, he had property in there, and he fought against it. Door County Advocate issued editorials against forming and creating Peninsula State Park. But we're still fighting for those things, right? And I mean, that, that, imagine yeah. if it didn't exist now. You know, like that. How much less valuable would all the land in Door County be if Peninsula State Park wasn't there? Yes, some individuals would now have beautiful homes on some of those bluffs, but we'd all lose that incredible resource. But it took a guy like Thomas Reynolds to, to fight for it and fight for it and fight for it and keep pushing that forward. And it took people like Emma Toft to push like hell for for the ridges and now we have this incredible resource that was that a potentially be a camper that was, was gonna, gonna be a campground campground yeah 
But and and then the passion that is continuing in those people that serve on the board or fight continue to fight for those organizations as well. I mean, there's always a push to, hey, how can we make some of this land go up for sale in Peninsula State Park? There was talk of that at one point. Yeah. We did a great fun little April Fools thing on that, but we won't <laughs> we don't need to go into that. We don't need to scare people again. No. But then even in the late sixties, you know, Whitefish Dunes, Rock Island, and uh Newport. Newport didn't exist until like 1965, I think they started. And within like an eight-year span, we got three new state parks added to the rolls. Like, that's pretty remarkable, too. Imagine what Whitefish Dunes, a couple of years ago, I wrote about what, you know, a big stretch of Newport State Park was almost de- sold for development. And just in time, and luckily it was right before probably the National Geographic article, because maybe four years later, they don't make the decision to sell that to the DNR. They, maybe they develop it and try to make more money that way. So there's a lot of things that we're just really fortunate. And, and the Nature Conservancy, too. That's a whole bunch of other land that is not developed that's open space and open to the water and all that. Mm-hmm. So Door County Living Philanthropy Issue is out on newsstands now. And when do we send that to everybody's mailbox? Early June. Early June. So a lot of great stories about people who are helping our community and, and giving back, but then a lot of great historical context. And I do hope that people check out that, that feature and looking at what our municipalities have, have invested because we can sometimes spend a lot of time, myself included, complaining about our village boards and our municipal boards. And we kind of forget the things that they're doing because a lot of people come up here and think everyone up here is, oh, they're so greedy. They're just selling everything for development, but they're forgetting as you see maybe another condo go up, you're not seeing that Pebble Beach is preserved or that public waterfront is there or that Nelson's has been purchased. Like the people here care. We make tons of mistakes and sometimes it takes us a lot of stumbling blocks to get to that right place. But the overarching push in Door County is everyone trying to figure out how to make it the best it can be and, and balance these things. To make the place better, to take care of one another and to preserve the the culture and heritage of the place. That's what the philanthropy issue tries to celebrate every year. It's got a really cool picture by Brett Cosmiter on the cover. It's an aerial shot of Pebble Beach. So find it on newsstands. And then we also have a video that we produced oh, that yeah. kind of plays into this theme that uh, is also available on doorcountypulse.com. And if you don't like to read a lot, if you don't want to flip through the issue, at least uh, check out that video. It's like, what, four and a half minutes long. It's narrated by one Dave Elliott. And, yeah. uh, but it goes, it, it, articulates a lot of things we've talked about today in shorter and that, and, form. And I don't want to leave out that that was, that was actually put together and presented by the Dor- Destination Door County. They're really jumping on this theme of preserving our waterfront and what and open spaces and want to make sure that they're maintaining those for the visitors as well. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there's that and, the, and the locals, mainly mm-hmm. the locals. All right. Well, Dave, thanks for taking some time. I know you got a, a, you have a, a meeting 10 o'clock, in a couple I minutes. I have a 10 o'clock, so... <laughs> Thanks for squeezing it in and pick up the philanthropy issue and send us your feedback, good or bad. I like to hear it. Miles needs good feedback. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dave. One more note about this year's Door County Living Philanthropy issue. This issue and some of our work here putting this, these stories together would not be possible without a grant from the Wisconsin Humanities Council's Beyond the Headlines project. They've given us some funding to help us do some of the research and dig deeper into some of these topics regarding water-related and shoreline-related issues in Door County and how it's impacting the community. So I'd really like to thank them and grant program manager Meg Turville heights for helping us to forward our work here and dive deeper into the stories of Door County. Listeners, thank you again for joining us on the Door County Pulse podcast. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with more stories about the news and people of Door County.
Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.